Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello again, everyone. It's Charles Marshall here, live from San Diego, California. Uh, We have uh, Bill Padlow with us today, and that's always very much appreciated. And today is March 2nd, 2018. A reminder, the West Coast Foreclosure Show is broadcast every other Thursday, And Neil's show is broadcast on alternate Thursdays. Uh, This show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Any amount that you're able to donate is very much appreciated. And thank you for that. And you can donate directly by selecting the donate button on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. Now, Bill, you've come across another bombshell case. And this one is an interesting one procedurally. It's out of Florida, which is normally a judicial foreclosure venue as the vast majority of our listeners know, I believe. However, this is the kind of preemptive test case that's very much frowned upon out here in the non-judicial foreclosure world of California and adjoining states. And yet this case has gotten quite a lot of traction. Uh, We did have a blog post on, on this earlier today. And what this case is doing, it's holding Chase to actually account for where the individual payments or the individual loan at issue in the the lawsuit, where are those payments going? How are they being accounted for? Are they being accounted for? Does Chase really have accounting and documents which show that they're actually in control of this individual loan in a meaningful way. And what's fascinating here is that the record so far is demonstrating that they are not in control of those documents and they don't appear to have those documents. And as the institutional players will so often do, they're doing everything in their power to try to stop this 
current court order from compelling them to produce documents showing loan-level activity. Uh, Bill, of course, will explain some more to our listeners what we mean when we're talking about loan-level activity. The case at issue here is Frugian versus J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, and there was just a motion uh, order issued related to some discovery that was simply not provided, and the order compels Chase to provide the documents, and they've actually submitted what amounts to they're calling it a motion for clarification. I think it's more of a motion for reconsideration where they're trying to undermine the tenor and the import and the actual wording of the order. We'll have to see how that all plays out. It's all happening in real time as this order came down quite recently, within the last week or so. Uh, so, Bill, why don't you fill our listeners in more about this case? Uh, because it, it's uh, it's a great proof in many ways of what Neil has been talking about for years in terms of there being no individual loan out there that in any legal or even real-world sense can be accounted for in these crazy quilt securitization scenarios. Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, Good to be on with you, Charles, as usual. Uh, this is a very, very remarkable Absolutely. case and um, <clears throat> very important the information uh, that is going to come out of this that already has come out of this based on <clears throat> the uh, memorandum in their motion or their argument in their motion that they just filed. And just to let you know that <clears throat> this emergency motion was filed last Saturday and on Monday, I believe uh, the judge denied most everything in this motion, uh, but it uh, appears to that <clears throat> um, they're going to have to produce whatever whatever they do produce is going to uh, be under a protective order. But <clears throat> I can pretty much uh, make a, a bold prediction on what they're going to come into at some point, <laughs> and it's going to be um, it's not going to be uh, in compliance with the order. It's simply going to be a wire transfer of a lump sum of money, and then they're going to bring in a loan schedule that shows uh, that they claim is the subject loan within that pool, and it's it's really going to be a bunch of nothing, but it's not going to comply. Um, <clears throat> the reason why this case is so remarkable, uh, Charles, is that it comes from a non-default situation. And I think, uh, as, as every who's listening to this program or have been following the blogs and whatnot, it's usually uh, folks that are um, in a foreclosure uh, realm or it's, it's usually in that context. And, and of course, anytime any homeowner in a foreclosure setting is seeking this information and discovery or whatnot, you know, it's fa they're faced with <clears throat> heavy-duty headwinds and pushback and, and usually noncompliance to which the court uh, tends to overlook. But in this particular case, <clears throat> Uh, when when this uh, homeowner came in and simply was being preemptive and saying, listen, I know that there's problems with the chain of title on these loans, especially Washington Mutual and what's been going on, and I, I want, I, I'm not in default, but I want answers. We're, when, when I send in my check every month to, the, to Chase as the servicer and you cash that check, where's the money going from that point? 
and what's uh, you know what, what are some very basic simple questions that are being asked have been met with great resistance and animosity. In fact, uh, you can tell just how. Um, nervous Chase is about this because I was reading a hearing transcript in this case and um, here you have uh, the pro se and that's another amazing part about this case is that the uh, party Prudian is acting pro se uh, but he comes into court and he explains to the judge look they're not complying with any of my discovery requests they're not giving me anything in fact what they are doing is they are becoming threatening in fact uh, they threatened to sue him for I think it's a hundred thousand dollars according to the transcript for filing this frivolous action they call it and uh, have been trying to intimidate him uh, every step of the way well clearly uh, you know he's pushing buttons here and uh, and the court has been uh, obliging him on this compel order because as I've read the deposition transcripts and the testimony of Chase uh, in the case they clearly have been testifying that they take the payments, that, and they cash the check, and then they forward it via wire transfer to the trustee, Wells Fargo. And they made those statements repeatedly uh, by two different witnesses in the case and in their, in their prior pleadings. But, so when asked for that information, uh, and now the court coming and compelling that information, now they change their tune and they're backtracking from it. Uh, which now they're basically saying that they don't have those types of records in their custody control. Their admissions that, that some of these documents, they simply don't exist, is very uh, vindicating for you know, Neil Garfield, who's been touting this for years. Um, a lot of us that have been fighting this for years, I mean, this is what we've been saying, is that without the accounting trail, um, there is no way anyone is safe, and that's why the message of this case needs to go out far and wide to all parties, not just those in foreclosure, but to everybody who's current on their payments, because you may be paying the wrong party, and you may not get that satisfaction if you pay that last payment at the end of 30 years. No one is safe until the accounting is brought forth. And, uh, and clearly, they're admitting in this uh, motion that, they don't have the goods. They don't have the documentation to segregate out any specific loan and show uh, that that payment from the borrower is actually going to the, the alleged investors. Now, what's also very interesting about this case is, and the games that they play is they're stating that Wells Fargo is the, is the investor in this case. Well, Wells Fargo is the trustee. So, okay, Maybe they'll come in with a wire transfer to Wells Fargo as the trustee, but where's the, where's the money going after Wells Fargo sends it off? Because the evidence, you know, is very clear. The trustees don't know who the investors are. They have no knowledge of the foreclosure transactions, and there's no way that uh, the identities of the certificate holders, who these investors are, it's just it doesn't exist, and so there's a disconnect. And in California, you know, you have the infamous Ivanova decision and where the court comes out and says, look, people don't owe a debt to the world at large, but they owe it to a particular person or institution. Well, this is, this is very telling because they, they can't show that that debt, they can't identify where that debt is going, nor can they show an accounting and a money trail. And that's a very frightening issue because 
Now the red flags go up when you're talking massive, you know, Ponzi schemes, money laundering. I mean, if how do they prove that this money isn't going to, you know, terrorist organizations, ISIS, drug cartels, wherever? At some point in these massive financial transactions, it's ludicrous to to say that when the money comes in at the front part of this transaction on this mortgage loan, there's no way to trace it and track it to the eventual uh, investor. That's that's very disturbing, and uh, uh, and that's that's really where the the rubber's going to meet the road in all this. And I think once everybody starts asking questions who are not in a situation of default, I think this is uh, a very pivotal moment that that really could unleash uh, what's going on behind behind the curtains. What do you think? Oh well, I agree. I mean, I think the utility of this in California at least for now, is going to be quite limited because of of the Ivanova stricture. And it is ironic because on the one hand, one of one of the best phrases coming out of the, the Ivanova holding is what you just said. You don't owe money to the world at large. You know, you the borrower, you owe money to a specific entity or maybe a specific individual even. In the case of these mortgage servicing situations and the supposed trust that, again, ostensibly stand behind the securitized framework, when, of course, in reality, they can't define the terms of how that looks and how that works and where the money goes. In any case, that whole phrase, unfortunately, it's, it doesn't have a lot of valence when the same Ivanova holding says only in a post foreclosure case, post auction case, can you really vet the money trail and where your payments were going and whether the servicer, the sales trustee, the, the securitized trust claiming to have been on your chain of title, that those various parties had standing and had essentially legal rights to collect on your loan. Uh, to limit the inquiry to only a situation where the property has gone to auction is is really, I think, a travesty to borrowers. And it's it's good to see preemptive cases, to use that language, that are getting traction. And it, it will be very interesting to see how this case ultimately plays out and where it ends up. You know, a takeaway from this is it's using discovery to pin down these types of issues. The, the limitation in California, though, is a lot of foreclosure cases are still being shut down at the demure stage except on homeowner bill of rights-related issues. And I'll, I'll be discussing that uh, shortly during today's broadcast. Uh, but, you know, as much as the Homeowner Bill of Rights in California does give some traction, uh, the, the ultimate remedies are not nearly as robust as what could be had if you're really putting the standing and the legitimacy of collecting of the defendants at issue. And, of course, the Homeowner Bill of Rights – 
does not put those chain of title legal questions at issue. It puts at issue, and it should put at issue, how the servicer is collecting and things like dual tracking. So, and in terms of this, uh, where do you where do you see this case going, Bill? Well, I it's I, I see them coming in um, with exactly what I predict. They're going to come in with a, a schedule of loans, saying, "See, the loans are in the pool. There is a trust," which we've been saying these trusts are non-existent. And then they're going to show a wire transfer of what a, however many millions of dollars uh, going to the thing, and they're hoping that that the judge is going to find that sufficient, but clearly it's it's not. That's not accounting. Um, that doesn't show what happens to the money in any you know uh, particular way with with that loan. And so these admissions that they don't have any verifiable accounting methods to to prove that the rightful party to those payments are receiving those payments. The court's essentially going to would have to sign off and say, you know, uh, no evidence can be shown as to the accounting of where the money goes. But as long as you owe a debt, I guess you're going to have to continue to pay the servicer um, who is supposed to represent these unknown parties. The, the court would have to just say, well, that's just too bad. You're going to have to still, you know, pay the potentially pay the wrong party and just deal with it. I, I it's it's absurd to think that that's that that could possibly happen, but, you know, as, as you, the lawyer, um, would, you know, should well know that when it comes to the collection of debts, uh, you have the right to face your accuser. You have the right to know who your creditor is, and if no one can step into the shoes as a creditor and be identified through accounting or any other method that they can't, they cannot be located, cannot be determined, well, then, uh, I can't see someone being forced to pay a stranger, um, and that's really what we're well, facing. It is very... Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Well, I mean, that's really what that's really what what this is coming to right now is that it's very clear from all the evidence that that exists out there, and including the admissions by the you know the banks and everyone else over all this period of time, that no creditor to whom the debt is owed fits that legal description, and, and they cannot be identified. They, we don't know who it is, and they cannot be identified. So now what do you de- how do you deal with that, Judge? How do you deal with that court when they come in saying that a debt is owed to XYZ creditor, and it's on paper, but there's nothing that supports the underlying transaction of that worthless piece of paper? They have no accounting to verify any of it. So what do, how do you handle that? And on top of that, what else strikes me about this whole situation, and this is at once fascinating and disturbing, is that we don't even know if the money that's being parlayed from Chase to Wells Fargo, I mean, it's for a pool of loans, hypothetically one pool of loans, is it hundreds of loans, dozens of loans within a securitized pool of other th- th- otherwise thousands of loans? I mean, we don't even know. It's very possible that the entire financial relationship here is leveraged in such a way uh, 
and 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 turned into sort of a, a derivative stream, which would be almost an exaggerated but logical result of the way this whole funding scheme has has issued forth. In other words, is Chase just paying a pool of money every month, which is more or less the same, regardless of the specific so-called loans that it's tied to? Is this almost like some kind of monthly payment that they're making based on some not free-floating but somewhat floating uh, entry and exit of specific loans which aren't even fully accounted for? I mean, the depths of the the lack of individual verification, the lack of being able to tie the, that payment stream to specific identifiable loans where one could know that their payment was actually going to a party purportedly authorized to collect the debt. We don't have any of that here. We just have these big payments floating around and I can't help but think that part of the reason this is going on here in 2018 is because of the big TARP bailout, the big too, too big to fail bailout. It, it does back in 2008 and nine. It does not strike me as odd that the two institutional players here are Chase and Wells Fargo, two of the very biggest TARP recipients, two of the very biggest too big to fail banks and they've been playing with such large sums of money for so long that again we we honestly don't know uh, just how kind of glibly generic this payment arrangement is I mean how specifically um, both authorized and iterated are the specific loans or the specific individual instruments, financial instruments, such as notes. How specific is any of this here? And uh, one hopes that the discovery process will expose just how slipshod this is, but this is something to watch for going forward. And I completely agree with you. One cannot exaggerate the import of this and how significant it is, uh, I think, to the whole foreclosure situation for borrowers all over the country. Yeah, no, you know, absolutely. I mean, the only way you're really going to know the answers to those uh, questions, as you well know, Charles, is you're going to have to have some large forensic accounting firms come in and and analyze. I mean, these these loans have to show up as receivables on the books. There has to be uh, a massive accounting and and uh, uh, auditing of this. I mean, clearly the FBI, when they did their investigation in that uh, DOJ unsealing in the California case, they said, listen. We simply can't trace these loans. We, we, because they were securitized, we, we can't track and we can't trace them. Well, you would think that the FBI probably had some forensic accountants involved there. Um, but if you have a situation where even the FBI can't, can't trace this stuff, well, now you have the makings of the perfect crime. Uh, I mean, if, if, you can, if you can continue to maneuver and do what you're doing 
in, in light of the fact that they admit, and there's no verifiable accounting or any of this to the to the money flowing. Um, again, it goes back to uh, you know, no no amount of discovery is ever going to get to that answer if if something doesn't exist, and it clearly doesn't. Yeah, is what we're is what we're seeing, and now through admissions, it doesn't exist. Um, and so, what this the political side of it is that the homeowners a long time ago, and I know Neil had said this many times, is that the decision was made to you know uh, pad the runway and throw the homeowners under the bus in all of this because the financial institutions have everyone hostage. They're basically saying, if you're going to call us on this, you're going to force us to show the accounting, which we don't have. You know, they got the gun to the head. We're going to take the economy down. So instead, we're going to allow this this crime spree to to, to continue. And it's uh, something, you know, at some point, this has to stop. It, it, it utterly has to stop because I think there's a, there's so many dangers involved on so many levels Um Again, if you can't trace the harvesting of people's homes and the money that's taking place and, and how they're liquidating it and where that money is going and to whom, um, it's 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 a I think it's a national security threat. Well, I agree with you because the transfer of millions of dollars like this on a regular basis, on a monthly basis, without even having the transparency to know that the payments are going for specific loans which can be documented and the payment streams can be analyzed and shown through accounting, et cetera, et cetera. Without that, this is just a big pool of money going from one big institution to another. And exactly what that money is really covering, we don't know. Now I'm going to need to pivot now to the uh, homeowner bill of rights situation. Uh, the case that was <clears throat> referenced <clears throat> on the blog earlier it's it's a somewhat older case. It it comes from 2015, and that's May 2015, and it's Valbuena versus Aquin Loan Servicing. So this case came down, you know, roughly plus or minus six months, seven months before Ivanova was decided, and it shows a couple of things. One, it shows how you know, coming into Ivanova, even when your property went to sale, because that's what happened here. This property was a property that went to sale. And this was a property where the causes of action started out chain of title related. Those got shot down, so the borrower pivoted to homeowner bill of rights causes of action in the amended complaint. And there were some real issues there particularly related to dual tracking, which various civil code sections in California address that issue. California Civil Code 2923.6 is what this case focused on. A good choice, not essential, but a good choice. And with the provisions listed in, in, uh, in that civil statute, 2923.6, the court was able to review what kind of time frame was provided by the servicer. And that was another interesting wrinkle to this case is because you, you had Aquin come into the servicing in March of 2013. Then the property goes to sale March 25th uh, of 
2013, and then you have Aquin sending out a letter when they take over the servicing weeks before the sale, essentially saying, oh, go ahead and submit your documents. We'll entertain the loan mod. The borrower does. The borrower's not able to put a complete package in in that kind of time frame right before the sale. So now you have a standard of practice where servicers come in to, to loans in California. Usually they will they will uh, do a new notice of trustee sale. That's a very standard practice. It's not an absolute requirement, but it's very difficult to show as the new servicer that you met the uh, requirements of notice to the borrower under other California uh, homeowner bill of rights provisions. Sometimes they'll even do a new notice of default, these new services. I bring this case up in the brief time I have to discuss it so that borrowers can reference it in California. Anytime you have a homeowner bill of rights issue, I think this is a go-to case and you might be able to get some utility out of it. Thank you, Bill, again for being with me today. And I will be back with everyone two weeks from now. Neil will be in next week. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.